From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The transgender population faces a lot of challenges in accessing and getting appropriate health care. We'll learn more about Mayo Clinic's transgender and intersex specialty care clinic designed to help those patients receive the care they need. Gender identity is not something that can be fixed or a disease that has to be changed. A genetic male, born at male at birth, who has a female identity, there's nothing that we have to change that. It's very similar to homosexuality. It's the way that you're born. Also on the program, we'll discuss the upcoming Olympic Games and the Russian doping scandal. And we'll learn more about ataxia through medical poetry. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Institutes of Health, transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or their behavior doesn't conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Here to lead us through a case study and help us understand the issues facing transgender individuals are Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Todd Nippelt and clinical psychologist Dr. Cesar Gonzalez. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank you for having us. Yeah, good to have you uh, both. And it's a topic we all, I think, want to learn about. It's, It's interesting, but it's confusing, and most of us have difficulty understanding all of the the complexities of the subject. So maybe to start with, it would be helpful if you would maybe share a patient story with us. Okay, uh, we can do that. Uh, And then we can uh, go over uh, about uh, the various uh, barriers to health care that these people uh, suffer and and, um, what we can do to help them. Okay. So uh, the, the case we can talk about is a... A case where uh, we initially saw the patient when uh, uh, she was uh, 19 years old, and uh, she was born uh, male. Her sex assigned at birth was male, and remembers through childhood that uh, she was just different, always liked to spend more time with the girls than, than the boys. In fact, had a twin brother who uh, she really didn't relate a whole lot to. She she, uh, played more with uh, girl-type toys, as as she recalls, growing up. And then, uh, of course, when you're that young, you don't know uh, much about sexual identity or gender identity or anything like that. And uh, it was fortunate for her that uh, she wasn't chastised by her parents. Many times parents or other relatives shame the child, and that and that can lead to a lot of trouble. As in, in and should they say to the, the the son, "You're acting like a girl," or are they? A lot of, of times, the, the, as children, they feel much more comfortable, say, dressing in uh, in the other gender's clothes, and they'll often do that, you know, with their sister or mother's clothes, and and sometimes they're they they do that, and they're told, you know, don't ever do that again, and and sure. you know, all that. Doctor Gonzalez is mm-hmm. the person we're talking about. Is Named Sarah, is yes. that correct? Is Sarah typical in that once puberty begins, that's when she started to figure out, wait a minute, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl? 
So one of the things that we know about early childhood development is that gender identity, and I'm going to differentiate it and, and separate it from gender expression, is that gender identity starts to pretty much solidify about the ages of, and there's some variation here, but anywhere from about two to four years of age. Now, this is identity. This is the internal experience of either being male or female or sometimes even other. Now, one of the differences is gender identity versus gender expression. So sometimes just because someone expresses their gender in a particular way doesn't necessarily mean that that is what their identity is. Mm -hmm. So this is actually a little bit more varied. So children tend in particular to be a little bit uh, more expressive with their gender and they explore with their gender. And it's a very natural, normal part of child development. Now, the issues come about when uh, sometimes the parents aren't accepting of those expressions of gender, whether it's playing with other uh, sex peers sure. or uh, wanting to dress or having a certain type of appearance that is associated with its stereotypically male or female mm -hmm. uh, characteristic. And so... When that happens, that's where the bullying comes in, that's sure. where the distress comes in, that's where the parents get very concerned. And so generally, identity, again, is, is, is very different from expression. And typically, when, when you ask a transgender individual, when did you start to express and start to put words to the fact that you were transgender? It, Sometimes the data is not clear, but it suggests that maybe around the age of nine. Okay. Um, and again, there's a little bit of differences between um, uh, trans masculine individuals and trans feminine individuals, but it's generally around that, that age. But in terms of identity, uh, gender identity starts to more or less solidify between two to four years of age. The, the issue with children uh, before adolescence is uh, this difference between just exploration and expression versus inherent identity. Mm -hmm. And and by the time they're at uh, puberty age, and if they still have that gender identity, it's likely going to persist into okay. adulthood. All right, we lost Sarah. So Sarah <laughs> is, is 19 years old now, and she comes to you. Was it her idea or her parents? And what did she tell you? What did she say to you? Uh, it was her idea, and she uh, came and indicated that she had uh, realized after, um, in fact, it was an interesting situation that they had a family tragedy and some female children came to live with them. And this was her first exposure to other, you know, intimate. Because it was all boys in the it family. It was all boys in the family and, until uh, these girls came to live with them. And and then she she realized then, oh, this is this is me. This is what I I can relate to to the girls. I'm like now. these girls, like even these though girls. I look like a guy. Exactly. And through high school, kind of suppress those things because it leads to to bullying and, and mm -hmm. everything like that. But then decided that um, uh, she was going to act on her um, inner feelings and talked with her friends, and they uh, were supportive of of her change and. So she came to consider uh, hormonal therapy to complete the transition from being male to female. All right, and you would give her hormones to help that process. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you give her give her him male hormones to 
make the physical the, appearance like the person rather than give her female hormones, give him female hormones. Yeah, so that's a good question. And the the thing about that is gender identity is not something that can be fixed or is um, a, a disease that has to be changed. Okay. So a, a male, a genetic male, born at male at birth, who has a female identity, you're, there's nothing that we have to change that. It's very similar to homosexuality. It's very similar to being left-handed. You know, it's, it's the way that you're born. It's the way that you're born. So giving a, a male who has a female gender identity testosterone is... They have plenty of testosterone. You know, they have normal male uh, development and hormonal studies. It's not going to change their identity. So you gave Sarah, a male, female hormones. Correct. And then what happens? Well, before we do that, we we make sure that, first of all, the, the condition is defined. And there are a lot of people have other uh, associated mental health issues because of the stress that they've had th- through their lives. Uh, depression and anxiety are very common. So we don't treat them the first time they show up. We, we have them have a mental health evaluation, uh, and Dr. Gonzalez can maybe take this moment to indicate what's involved with the initial psychological evaluation. Absolutely. So one of the first steps is really engaging in gender exploration. And this really involves getting a good sense of the individual, their identity, their history in terms of gender uh, exploration and expression. The reason why we do that is because for many individuals, because of the stigma associated with uh, having uh, uh, being more gender atypical Mm -hmm. in our society, what happens is there is a lot of stigma and so they hide and conceal. And so for the parent, a lot of the times, this is new news. How long? This just recently happened, but for the individual, it's been going on for a long while, typically. And our goal is really to assist and facilitate the individual in knowing themselves so that they can communicate who they are to others, so that they start to build relationships. They start to build a sense of autonomy and identity and also uh, a sense of competency in terms of relating to the world and being a part of society. And so for this reason, we work with them to increase coping as strategies to work in the world where sometimes it might not necessarily be the most accepting places. Um, and we really facilitate that journey and that exploration. And sometimes hormonal, medical, surgical intervention is not the next logical step for the individual, but at times it is, as was the case with Sarah. So it's really making the gender identity and the gender expression more congruent with one another to help alleviate that discomfort that's associated with gender dysphoria. Wow. Interesting. Transgender care at the Mayo Clinic. We need to take a short break. Our guests are Dr. Todd Nippold and Dr. Cesar Gonzalez. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about transgender people and the transgender clinic at Mayo Clinic. And our guests are Dr. Todd Nippold and Dr. Cesar Gonzalez. So we've talked about a lot, and maybe one of the things that we should talk about, in addition to trying to 
totally understand this, is all the health problems and the societal problems that are faced by transgender individuals. Absolutely. And before I go into, onto that topic, I just want to make sure that I provide a clarification in terms of the language. And so one of the things that's really important to consider is to use language that's very aware and culturally specific and responsible. Mm-hmm. And with doing that, one of the important uh, issues to be aware that most individuals don't feel that they were born either male or female, but that they were assigned male or female by our current system. So for example, in some states now and some countries, the birth certificate isn't gender binary. So meaning it's not either or, and it allows for a third gender. So when referring to individuals, what we can do is we can really bring up the topic about sex that signed at birth Mm -hmm. and then their current gender identity. Because to go back to Sarah's story, she would say they put male on my birth certificate, but I was born a female. Exactly. Or you could say, I was born with a penis, but I am a female. I mean, to go back to Sarah's story, what was it like for her as she then moved into that going in through that treatment part. Right. As I mentioned earlier, being transgender is not a disease. It's a state of diversity. But the disease is called gender dysphoria, and that means the discomfort that people have because of that, and that's brought on often by the the bullying, the society, the non-acceptance and things, and manifests often with anxiety, depression, and suicidal uh, concerns. So the treatment is to relieve the dysphoria. And that, in some individuals, can be just self-exploration and with the help of a counselor. Some require hormonal therapy, and a smaller subset go on to uh, surgical changes. Now, what percent of people ask about surgical changes? That's a, a, an excellent question, too. It's a very small percentage, and, and the, there's several reasons for that. Is The availability uh, has been limited in the past. Insurance coverage has been limited. That's starting to change. Now, so there's probably going to be more people, but you know, it's on the order of only five percent or, or mm. less. Um, the rate of suicide for transgender individuals is astronomical. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Absolutely. And this has to do with the topic around what we've been discussing, which is minority stress. Those are That's a a word to really describe the experience of all the stigma, the discrimination, and also the absorption of these negative societal messages as your own understanding of who you are as an individual. And it's those things that lead to these uh, increased experiences of of suicidal ideation and also non-suicidal ideation as well. What we know is that approximately, and it varies, about 45% of individuals Mm. attempt suicide at least once in their lifetime. And the general population is? Uh, It's very minimal. It's about 6% approximately. in the transgender population, it's it's over 40s. Over in the over 40s. Rate of depression is in the 50s. And also non-suicidal self-injury, meaning not intending to end your life, but engaging in self-harm is in the 40% as well. So if you have a family member who say, you know what, this has been me since I've been nine years old, I'm finally going to say it. What should families do? Absolutely. (laughs) One of the most important things and that we know from the literature and the science is familial support, family support, whether that's adoptive family, biological family, is one of the most important protective factors. And this has been found in multiple studies, is having the support of the parents to even engage in the exploration process will provide Mm -hmm. immense protective 
factors for the individual. One of the things uh, recently that the National Center for Transgender Equality came out was a, a national survey of about 28,000 transgender-identified individuals in the United States. And they uh, disclosed in the survey that 59% of transgender individuals have avoided bathroom use out of fear of some harmful negative consequence. Well, that's interesting because I was just going to ask you, Dr. Nipple, it's very difficult for me to understand. And let's go back to Sarah. So now she, I think she's 22 now. Uh, You gave her female hormones to help her feel more like a, a woman and maybe look more like a, a woman? Exactly. But she's got male genitalia still. You know, it's it's one of those things that what's important for the people are to be able to pass in society as their identified gender. So that's where the hormonal therapy helps. It helps uh, feminizing, make feminizing features, and allows the, the duress is a, a major important part of that as well, and develop uh, Uh, breast tissue in in male to female as well. But the presence of the genitalia themselves is not defining for these individuals. Is that the least of the situation? It's it's very, it's the the least of the situation. And the other aspect which I found is not a concern for the vast majority of people is the the sexual orientation things. Sexual orientation is totally separate from gender identity as well, and that's the uh, gender that one is attracted to romantically, and that runs the whole gamut uh, in transgender people just like it does in people who are not transgender. Dr. Gonzalez, is it the case that every transgender individual wants to pass as the opposite sex, or where do they fall in that spectrum? So in the case of, of Sarah, she, uh, they are very much uh, what we would call gender binary. So going from one gender box to another gender box. One of the things to keep in mind is that there's a whole variation in between. Some individuals, their goal is not necessarily to pass. So their goal is more to just go from the gender box that they were assigned into their own gender box, really being having their own sense of gender expression, whether that's passing or not passing. And so I think that's a really important concept to keep in mind and to really recognize the diversity of gender expression and identity. Well, you know, I think it would be take a long time to understand, totally understand this complex subject. But the most important thing we've learned is that there are there is a place for these people to go. And there's a transgender uh, clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Yes, we've been officially open for about a year and a half, and uh, we try to uh, arrange things. So we we follow the regular Mayo Clinic model of care where we, it's a multi-specialty program uh, with all the various areas that are required in one place coming to the patient. Uh, we see them for mental health evaluation. We see for um, uh, hormonal therapy. And at this point in time, uh, surgical therapy here at Mayo is limited to the breast uh, surgeries or facial feminization surgery. We also have a voice therapist who uh, helps with feminizing the, the voice, which is a, a major uh, issue as well. So it's all these little things that uh, we try to address to help the people live a comfortable life. Transgender care at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Todd Nippolt, Dr. Cesar Gonzalez, thanks so much, gentlemen, for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the upcoming Summer Olympic Games and the Russian track and field doping schedule. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Are you focused on your weight? New research indicates you might want to focus on water, too. A study published in the Annals of Family Medicine reveals that staying hydrated by drinking water and eating more water-laden fruits and veggies could help people who are overweight manage pounds. Researchers at the University of Michigan measured the concentration of water in the urine of more than 9,500 adults. Results show hydration is especially important to people whose body mass index puts them in the overweight or obese category. Researchers say it could be that people who are overweight are more likely to be inadequately hydrated or that people who stay well hydrated are less likely to be obese. So how much water is enough for the average man or woman? Well, if you're not hydrated, chances are you're going to feel a little fatigued and you might have a headache. I think in our busy lifestyles, we kind of run through the day and we don't drink a whole lot. Dietitian Catherine Zeratz says keeping a water bottle nearby can be a great reminder that you should be sipping more than two liters of water a day. For women, it's about 2.7 liters per day, and for men, it's about 3.7 liters per day. For a guy, that's almost a gallon of gulps every day. And any type of liquid can count. Now, in terms of sports drinks or other beverages, keep in mind that those are going to have calories. Zeratsky says plain old H2O is your best bet, and fresh produce is another smart pick. Not only will you get a lot of good nutrition, but you'll get a lot of good fluid. And in other news, let's talk about physical activity. It doesn't need to be complicated. Something as simple as a daily brisk walk can help you live a healthier life. For example, a regular walk can help you maintain a healthy weight, prevent or manage various conditions, including heart disease, high blood pressure, and type 2 diabetes, strengthen your bones and muscles, improve your mood, and improve your balance and coordination. The faster, farther, and more frequently you walk, the greater the benefits. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, in just two weeks' time, boy, the summer is dwindling away, <laughs> isn't it? The Olympic Summer Games will kick off in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Now, the run-up to those games, the Olympic Games, has been marred by controversy. I guess that's no big surprise. Including a Russian team doping scandal. Positive doping tests by Russian athletes were covered up by the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, the very organization charged with making sure that its athletes were clean athletes. The International Association of Athletics Federations, the IAAF, suspended Russia in November after a World Anti-Doping Agency report. It detailed widespread state-sponsored doping in Russian track and field. And the ban was upheld by the IAAF in a vote last month, but you know what? It's not over. (laughs) There are appeals by individual Russian athletes who are hoping to compete in Rio. They're still going on. Here to explain what doping is and how it improves athletic performance is Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and exercise scientist, Dr. Michael Joyner. Welcome to the program, Dr. Joyner. Good to see you. Tom, it's great to be here. Good to see you, Tracy. Exercise scientist, is that is that okay? I, I didn't know exactly what to call you because you're a lot more than just an anesthesiologist. <laughs> well, I, I have a broad base of interest, as you know, but exercise and human performance is certainly one of them. So, all right, let's talk, talk about doping. What are these athletes taking and in what way? and how does it improve their performance? Tom, there are typically three types of things people do uh, to dope to improve performance. First, they take anabolic steroids or growth hormone to get stronger. Second, they take uh, either erythropoietin or blood dope to improve their endurance, increase the number of red cells. And the third thing historically is people take stimulants. We think of them as amphetamine, speed, 
uppers and so forth. Those are the three broad categories of compounds that people use. So erythropoietin, that's the one that increases the number of your blood cells so your blood can carry more oxygen, so your your, stamina is better. Stamina is better. Your maximal oxygen uptake is higher, and that's really what got Lance Armstrong into so much trouble. He was also dabbling with some other things, but EPO was the uh, big thing with Lance. And as testing improved and developed more with EPO, the EPO testing got better. He actually went back to old-school blood doping where you remove blood Give it in, in kind of a underground uh, blood bank, and then you retransfuse the blood during key times in, in, in the in the competition. So that's why he was ri- able to ride a bicycle further and faster than anybody else. He had more red blood cells. Well, a lot of people were doping, but let's just say Lance never had a bad day, <laughs> and um, he was able to titrate his blood count in a way that really helped his performance. What were the Russian athletes doing? All of the above. And so really? the organization that was supposed to be making sure that they were not right. doping was helping them to do it. Right. And, and the history of state-sponsored doping is kind of long and interesting, and it goes way, way back to amphetamine use before World War II. Amphetamines are now pretty easy to test for, and you don't hear or see a lot about amphetamine use. So the two big classes of drugs, again, are steroids or growth hormone and erythropoietin. So what has happened is that those compounds are also difficult to test for, and they've gone to something called a biological passport, where they monitor your blood counts and certain other metabolites and hormone levels in your blood over time. Now, it's been known for a long time, uh, as a journalist friend of mine once told me, that all of the Russians look like identical twins and that their levels were right below the detectable levels. So mm-hmm. they had been titrating things for a while. And what happened was uh, when they had suspicious tests, they came up with ways to switch out the blood and urine to get clean blood or urine into the testing system. What's interesting about that is we think about people, again, like Lance Armstrong, Marion Jones, people in the U.S. who've been caught doping. A lot of that, they were caught via traditional um, police work, emails. uh, The FedEx package. The FedEx package. You know, why did somebody get a cash transfer for X amount of dollars, you know, who might have been making drugs in their basement and so forth? They were really very innovative. The Russians had really gone to kind of old school doping. And we're going to use cloak and dagger techniques to beat the test. Where, uh, you know, our capitalist friends, uh, Marion Jones and Lance Armstrong, came up with innovative compounds and new and better doping schemes. There are a couple of problems here. It's very difficult to develop tests that can actually catch these people. If people use high doses of these compounds, it's quite straightforward. But what people fail to recognize, Tom, is that these races are won by less than 1%. The Tour de France is 80 hours long. Maybe 10 hours of that are highly competitive. Lance Armstrong was winning by a minute or two. If somebody wins a 10,000-meter race by 1%, they win by 100 meters. So people are looking for tiny, tiny, tiny edges. So what's happened is people have gone from industrial strength doping. We remember what the East German women looked like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now look at what Marion Jones looked like. You know, She didn't look particularly masculinized. And so people use very, very low doses or micro doses. They use short-acting drugs, and they give the drugs in a way so that the metabolites of the drugs will not show up in their urine or blood. Wow. Is is there going to come a time where take the drugs that they want to take and we'll call that the new the new baseline? And that sort of frustration topic or frustration approach, um, Tracy recycles every time there's a big scandal. Right. 
I think testing is getting better, and I think that there are some other things that happen. People are probably relying a little bit too much on the testing where you need uh, a couple of things. You need an independent doping agency, so the Russians aren't policing the Russians. The, you need a um, some investigative powers. These things have to be adequately funded, and you have to um, do things like uh, be able to manipulate the um, – Penalties so that you get people to actually, like prosecutors do, so they can actually start talking about some of these doping networks and so forth. So I think there are a number of things you can do. I think drug testing has gotten better, but there's two incentive sets here. One, the incentive for the athlete is great, but remember the organizations, just like Major League Baseball wanted a home run derby after the right. baseball strike, you know, the, the organizations do want to show spectacular performances on TV, so... You know, they've, they've been known to turn a blind eye once in a while. So we know that cheating scandals have rocked a whole bunch of different sports yep. in this country and around the world. Is the is the ultimate answer better testing, or, or what is the answer? It, you know, it's a collection of things. If you look at any time there's a big problem like this, it's a Swiss cheese problem. Multiple layers and all the holes have to sort of line up. So the first thing you have to do is do develop better testing. But then you have to develop better testing protocols. You have to have independent people doing the testing. You have to um, not let people skip tests. You have to not have the Russians testing the Russians or people in the United States testing the United States. I mean, Justin Gatlin, uh, who's qualified for the Olympics in the U.S., has been banned twice for doping. So other people see that, other countries see that, and they think, well, you know, the United States, they've got a lot of technology, and what are they doing? You know, they, they view it through their own lens. And so the, the the Russians, I'm quite sure, believe that we're just better at it than they are. So how did the Russians get caught? The Russians got caught because uh, some athletes blew the whistle and were upset that they were being forced to, to dope. And because there was a whistleblower, uh, a sports scientist, one of the guys actually involved in the in the doping control effort, blew the whistle. He's now living in, in L.A., <laughs> uh, and I've actually, uh, Dr., uh, I think his last name is Rodinikoff, Dr. Grigory Rodinikoff, and I actually sat next to him at a conference <laughs> two years ago on this topic. And, you know, he didn't really say too much during the meeting, but, uh, you know, you're having coffee or maybe a, a beer at the cocktail hour, and he expressed uh, confidence that pretty much everybody was doping. So I think once you have that perspective, then you develop an arms race mentality and you know, if everybody's doping, you better dope if you want to keep up. So I think that that sort of happened. But interesting that one of the athletes was the whistleblower because they didn't want right. to be the do- doing the doping that was expected of them. Well, and, and, you know, if you look at the old East German literature, so so the East Germans kept really good records of who got how much drug when. And in the East German files, there are people complaining that other athletes were getting better drugs, more <laughs> drugs, or, or more sophisticated doping regimens because these people are highly competitive. There's a lot of prestige uh, on the line. And in the case of these Germans, it wasn't money so much. It was prestige, but a lot of money on the line. So, so people want a level playing field. All right. Good to have you here, Dr. Joyner. He is an anesthesiologist and exercise scientist at the Mayo Clinic, Olympics and Doping. Thanks for filling us in. Good to have you with us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about ataxia through one physician's poetry. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Ataxia. Have you heard that word before? I Tracy? have. I don't know what it means, though. Well, I'll tell you. It <laughs> means a lack of muscle control during voluntary movements, like when you're walking or picking something up. And it's often a sign of an underlying problem or condition, usually something in your brain, something wrong in your brain. And ataxia can affect, affect movement, speech, eye movement, even swallowing. Persistent ataxia usually results from damage to your cerebellum, the part of your brain that controls muscle coordination. Conditions can cause ataxia, including stroke, tumor, cerebral palsy, and multiple sclerosis. And hereditary can play a big part, too. Interesting. Well, here to talk about ataxia in a unique way, that is, through the words of her own medical poetry, is Dr. Sherry Ann Brown. Dr. Brown is a cardiology fellow in the Clinical Investigator Program at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brown. Nice to have you. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Poetry, a lifelong interest of yours, right? <laughs> it certainly has been. Well, you know, before we get into the, the subject, the more mundane subject of a taxi, let's hear some of your best stuff. Did you bring any poems? <laughs> I did. Funny you should ask. <laughs> All right. I'm going to share two that seem to have really touched the hearts of many people. And you can tell me what you all think. This first one is called Just One More Step, and it was published in Minnesota Medicine in 2014. I could give in to the challenge before me, or yet I could give out. Alternatively, I could give all, all I have in me, all I have left to step. I could stay in this position. I'm sure I could find justification. But just as I could choose to stop, I could instead choose to step. If I could take just one more step, I know I will be all right. I know I won't be back at the start. I know this with all my heart. If I could take just one more step, I will be closer to the finish line, where an earned yet gracious victory will be mine. If I could step, I know I will make it. I know my dreams will come true. I must keep on stepping, with my pen or my finger, with my voice or my pointer, my legs or my walker, my feet or my wheeler, with a clear gaze or through the haze, with my muscles cooperating or with me overcoming, I must just step. How did you start writing medical poetry? So it started several years ago, maybe at about 15 years old, I started writing poetry just to express my thoughts in general. Mm -hmm. And so as I got deeper and deeper into science and medicine, then naturally I wanted to express my thoughts about science and medicine. So the very first one was probably at the American Society for Cell Biology, Cell Slam, where there was poetry and cheerleading and rap and whatever people <laughs> chose to do to talk about their science. And so that was my very first science poem. And since then, I realized that writing poetry about my research or about medicine helps me to process it in a way that I couldn't otherwise because it had to make sense to express it to people that way. You are a cardiology fellow, but you're writing about ataxia, and I'm not a medical person, but this, those two <laughs> things aren't, com aren't, aren't working together, are they, or are they? You're right, and those are the sort of questions I've gotten all my <laughs> life. How come you're a, you're a physics major and then you chose to be a doctor? And so the way I think about it is that it's all related and it's all connected. And so whether I f majored in physics in college and was, was a pre-med major at the same time, didn't really change the fact that all along I knew my calling was as a physician. And over time I realized my calling was also as a scientist. And so the work that really was most interesting to me when I was doing my PhD was on ataxia, to understand how we can use various tools in biotechnology to learn more about the brain, and then how can we use those tools to another body part. And so now I get to use those for cardiology, which is my true 
true calling. Yeah, but I'm sort of surprised you didn't end up in neurology because most people with ataxia see a neurologist as their as a specialist, right? You're absolutely right. And I thought very deeply about neurology, and I realized that. As much as I had done several years of research in ataxia, and I still continue to write review papers about ataxia and answer questions, at the same time, I realized that I can use the same tools to also work on the heart. The heart and the brain, for me, are two really wonderful organs. And indeed, patients with ataxia will go to neurologists, and patients with heart conditions will now come to me. But I've been able to make a real mark in the field that can really be helpful to others. What are the symptoms of ataxia? How do people know that they have it? So some of the ones that you were talking about before, if you're trying to use your phone and you can't quite touch the right buttons, if you're trying to write and your handwriting isn't coming together and making sense. If like you're most trying, physicians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So most of us really have a taxi <laughs> baseline, so that explains why I would be working wow. on this. <laughs> and yeah. what's the hereditary component? So there are several different kinds of ataxia, and it's interesting because there are mutations in various proteins on the surface of a cell or proteins inside a cell, and very different proteins in very different individuals can present with ataxia. And so there are many, many people studying those, and I studied one of them also. I made computer models of the brain that could be used to study any number of ataxias with any mutation you chose, because all the proteins are in the models. Wow, sounds pretty complicated. So most people who have these movement disorders or ataxia, uh, are you able to determine what the underlying cause is? For many people, yes. And as we do more and more research, we come to realize that there are many kinds of ataxias that we've known about for quite some time, and we're just recognizing the mutations that may be causing them. And just in the past decade, we have been learning more about this from studies with mice and from studies with humans. And I assume that if the, the more you learn, the more, the more options you have for treatment, I mean, medicine-wise, even surgery, uh, can help these people? Right. And unfortunately, most of the treatment so far has been with speech therapy or other supportive measures and not much curative. And so as we learn more about what's causing the ataxia, as we learn more about the mutations, about the proteins, then we can have an eye towards therapeutics. Can you share your other poem about uh, ataxia? I would love to. I will tell you that when I was working in the hospital one night, I was looking for this poem to show it to somebody when we had a little bit of downtime. And while I was searching for it on Google, I actually came across a note from a patient with ataxia and how much this poem had meant to them when they got it as a gift from someone. So I thought I'd share some of it with you. Oh, good. Thank you. By the way, the first one was beautiful. This one I'm sure will be too. Thank you. How will I dance? Now that you've taken away my balance, how will I prance? Now with this unsteadiness, how will I find happiness? Now with this slur, how will my voice be heard? When my legs fail, who will listen to my wail? When I can't keep my gaze, who will help me see through the haze? When this ataxia threatens to take control, will it take a toll on me? Perhaps it will affect the flesh of my body, but it will not deter what's inside of me. Perhaps it will take away my voice, but it will not remove my choice to decide how to abide, not in fear or anticipation, but in the knowledge of my dedication to the essence of who I am, to the essence of what I can achieve. Although a taxi will try to rain on my parade, my will and gusto will form a motorcade, a barricade, a barrier. My spirit will dance, 
My heart will dance, my mind will dance, and by golly, my voice will dance. My voice is within, the dance is within. You are truly multi-talented. Very good. Dr. Sherry Ann Brown, Cardiology Fellow in the Mayo Clinic Clinical Investigator Program. Great to have you with us. So great to be here. Thank you. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.